Welcome to Pod Academy. This is the third of the Houston Film Lectures, a series of lectures given to students at the National University of Ireland's Houston School of Film and Digital Media in Galway. The lecture series features leading film directors, writers, producers, cinematographers and academics. This third lecture is given by Colin McCabe, a British writer, film producer and university professor. In his lecture, McCabe provides an insightful portrait of an almost mythical figure in cinema, Jean-Luc Godard. Colin McCabe's biography of the French-Swiss filmmaker was first published in 2003 under the title Godard, a portrait of the artist at 70. To rehearse what presumably is very familiar to you, the Cahiers du Cinéma uh, came up with their theory of the author in the 50s, and they came up with it, as Goddard says, so that we could say that Hitchcock or Ford were as great an artist as Aragon or Picasso. And the theory of the author that the uh, Cahiers uh, critics developed was a theory of the author above all at the service of a theory of the cinema which was against writing. Classic French cinema traditionally took a great literary text, adapted it, and the director and the writer of the screenplay were held to be at the service of this literary masterpiece. Truffaut and Godard, Godard and the others wanted nothing to do with that. They, wanted, they were not interested in uh, the writer, they were interested in the director. They were not interested particularly in the script. They were interested in the lighting. They were interested in the shot sequence. They were interested in the performances. They were interested in the themes that repeated across films. And one of the things you can notice about this is that immediately you summon into being uh, the author, uh, the authors that the Kaiju Cinema were interested in. There are two things you can say about it. The first, of, first thing is that the Cahiers du Cinema is the first theory of the author, or certainly the first theory of the author that I am aware of, which is from the position of the audience. It's not a theory which is, as it were, produced from the side of the author, the side of the subject. It's a theory of the author which is produced from the side of the audience. And the second thing to say about it is that it was, above all, a way of categorising the cinema. It was, above all, a way of taking the huge archive of a particularly commercial American cinema and saying, here are a set of ways in which you can divide up the archive, here are a set of ways in which you can decide what it is that is worth seeing. That actually, the concept of the author is a way of dividing up of regulating this history and producing a canon which actually we are all now deeply familiar with because it's a canon we all learn from but a canon which was not in those initial years uh, available. So as a theory of the author it has the interesting features that it is from the side of the audience and that it's related to the archive or the corpus. In that sense, it's very, very different from traditional romantic theories of the author, though it does have most of those traditional romantic theories in with it. Now, if one is coming to 
the cinema from outside, if you're coming to the, uh, a film set on which large numbers of people mill around, expensive equipment is moved about, and that those delicate things called actors place themselves in front of the camera, you become fairly quickly aware of the fact that if there is not someone orchestrating this uh, huge uh, ensemble, that the whole thing is likely to fall apart. So in other words, if you look at, at a film set, it seems quite clear that there has to be someone in charge of it. And it's also quite clear that that someone is most evidently uh, the director. Now, I should just as a parenthesis say that actually I have a great number of doubts about the auteur theory in its pure form. If we just take the filmmakers who the Kaye were most interested in, that is Hitchcock and Hawks, they were interested in them as great directors who didn't write. But actually, our film history of the last 30 years has rather altered our picture of those directors. It is true, as far as we know, that Hitchcock uh, never put pen to paper. On the other hand, if you read the accounts of how Hitchcock would get some original material, get a writer, and decamp to a hotel room in which he would sit with the writer until the script was finished, it's not at all clear that Hitchcock didn't at some level write his own scripts. And if we look at Hawks, uh, we have a very different method of work, but if we look at the time he spends improvising with his actors and the way that that improvisation gets turned into the scenes that we watch, again, the notion that, that, that Hawks isn't originating his scripts is extremely doubtful. So uh, uh, this is not the, the topic of my lecture, but it seems to me that when one's talking about the author in cinema, that the role of the writer is absolutely not uh, to be underestimated. Actually, as a matter of fact, all of the directors who came out of the Cahiers of Cinema writing in the, in the 50s, uh, we know all their names, Roma, Rivette, Chabrol, Godard, uh, Truffaut, with the exception, I think, of Chabrol, and even, I'm not sure with the exception of him, but they, they all wrote as well as directed. So although they're theoretically, they have been in favour of the director against the writer, and although they had been absolutely determined to stress features of the cinema which were not to do with the writing, it, it is nonetheless of some importance that they are, are actually all wrote their own scripts. But that, as I say, is, is an aside. Okay, so if we're now faced with a series of arguments against the author, uh, a series of arguments above all against a notion of the unifying and controlling author, the author uh, perhaps above all of romantic theory, the author as the individual set aside from society who finds in nature and art uh, a truth which he communicates and a truth which he has privileged access to. If we want to avoid uh, the problems of that view of the author, we're nonetheless faced with a set of arguments which makes it difficult, particularly in the cinema, to get round the author.
for arguments both practical as well as theoretical. And those are in some sense the difficulties that I found myself confronting when I decided to write the biography of Goddard. And it seemed to me that the way to avoid the problem of the unified uh, author was indeed to take my lessons from the modernist texts, which in fact have inspired both Bart and Foucault, because the whole of the Parisian theory of uh, the 60s is in fact a kind of repetition or rerun of the modernist experiments in art, uh, literature and thinking of the 20s and 30s. And uh, I took as my model that well-known Irish writer James Joyce, and as you know, Joyce, well, it can be argued that Joyce did nothing but write on biographies, but it's leaving that rather general question aside. We know that Joyce had two very different stabs at writing an autobiographical novel. The first, which apparently there was over a thousand pages of manuscript, he threw on the fire, and a small fragment of it was retained and published after his death as Stephen Hero. And a second version, uh, with which we are, uh, I assume, particularly in this room, all familiar, is A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which was published in 1914, 1916. In the first book, Stephen Hero, Joyce tries to write a continuous narrative account of the birth of the artistic consciousness. We don't have the beginning and we don't have the end, but we have a middle section which shows him as a student at the university, 50 times cleverer than all his contemporaries, are 50 times more artistically endowed, and it has to be said, a tremendous prig. Um, and it's interesting that that priggishness is entirely built into the structure of Stephen Hero, which is exactly written within a continuous progression towards ever greater knowledge, and in which that ever greater knowledge is always already at the author's hand in order for him to pour scorn and derision on the stupidity of his student fellows and their pathetic aspirations, both religious and political. And one can see in that Stephen Hero exactly the attempt to produce an account of the birth of the romantic author. That is to say, a birth of exactly this controlling and omniscient consciousness exactly in control of his world. What does Joyce do when he throws this away as worthless and starts again? He completely gives up that continuous narrative thread. The book that he did publish, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, comes in five sections. Each section is written in a different, a subtly different register and voice, suitable to the particular stage of which the extract is a, a, a representation, there is no attempt to link together these five episodes to give a coherent account of consciousness, so that, for example, at the end of the very famous third section, when having been promised all the fires of hell, he returns to confession and communion of the church, the break then to the next section, in which he's lapsed again, is not greatly explained, and explained even less is the break between the end of that fourth section, where he sees the vision of the young woman on the beach, 
the vision of the artistic triumph, and then an abrupt break, and we find ourselves in the kitchen of the impoverished Daedalus's, having breakfast uh, before he sets off for his lecture, and again, no attempt is made to produce an overarching account of how one moment relates to another. In other words, Joyce uses a montage as his crucial tool in providing what, uh, according to what I, for the, for the purposes of this lecture, rather than portrait of the artist as a young man, we should perhaps call snapshots of the artist as a young man. So what it seemed to me uh, it was important to do was to try and find a set of angles on Godard which would provide a way in talking about some of the important elements of the experience of the director without at any point attempting to produce a, a, an overall coherent view, without at any point uh, attempting to produce an understanding of a subjectivity. And uh, if there was a rule I had um, pasted to my uh, word processor as I wrote it, it was that I must never use any sentence of the form he must have thought or he must have felt. Not simply because how on earth could I know how he must have thought or he must have felt, but because the lie of that particular formulation goes much deeper. How does anybody who is living a life know what they think or feel as they live it? And I tell you, it's much more difficult to avoid sentences of that structure than you might think. <laughs> uh, even with uh, th that injunction, as it were, to myself, which was constantly there, I must have produced, if not every day, certainly every other day, a sentence of that type and had to go back and start again. Why the author at all? Well, the author at all because I think that Kaye are right, and I think that Kaye are right not just in the realm of cinema, but in the realm of literature, that you find certain kinds of repetition, certain kinds of emphases, which you don't have to explain by an all-knowing, all-unified, regular consciousness, but which you probably do have to explain by the specific way in which an individual body traverses a whole set of institutions and histories, and which in some very deep sense makes us all really individual. And that individuality is not the individuality of the Romantics. It's not a unified uh, individuality. It's an individuality which maps might even be better be written in true Joyce and style in hyphen individual, in which the emphasis is as much on the individual nature of the body that traverses these histories and institutions as on its unity. Okay, so I chose a series of such uh, traverses. The first uh, was the family. And one of the interesting things about Godard is that he is a French Protestant. And something I didn't know before uh, I embarked uh, on the book, he's not simply a French Protestant, but through his mother's side, he is a member of the most famous French Protestant family of France, the Monos, who include Nobel Prize winners, uh, Jacques Chirac's right-hand man in the last presidential campaign, 
and above all, hosts and hosts of clergymen, Protestant clergymen. And uh, the other thing, perhaps even more interesting I discovered, uh, is that Godard has spent almost his entire life travelling between two towns. Between, on the one hand, Paris, the great metropolitan city of Europe, the city which from the 17th century till the 1960s was the intellectual capital not just of Europe but of the world, and on the other hand, a small Swiss town called Nyon in the canton de Vaux on the banks of uh, Lake Geneva, some 30 miles from Geneva, and his life has been a back and forth between these two places. What was interesting was that I discovered his family's life had been a back and forth between these two places, that you could go back two, three, four generations and discover this passage between two countries, two cultures, and the passage between being coming from the absolutely, remember Geneva is the Protestant capital of Europe, between uh, a setting where his religion was the norm and a setting uh, within France where Protestantism is a tiny percentage of the population, uh, no more than 2%, and which had known a tremendous history of suffering and persecution throughout the 17th and 18th century. And one finds in this Protestantism, one finds at least two things which, without in any way wanting to read directly from religious structures to practice of an individual, they at least seem to me suggestive, if not illuminating. The first thing, of course, that this Protestantism has as the tremendous notion of justification by faith. And above all, at its centre, the notion of the elect, those who, whatever their actions, are saved. And I think if you look at Godard's work, uh, both his films and his um, uh, writings, you can see that this tremendous sense of the importance of faith, a faith that Godard is above all a faith in the cinema, a faith that one must preserve against all misadventures and doubts, is, I think, in a, quite a strong sense, a Protestant faith. And something else which uh, I found very interesting and suggestive is that French Protestants talk of the 18th century as the time of the desert, uh, a time when they were not only forbidden to practice their own faith, but were forced uh, to follow publicly uh, the Catholic faith, and in which all performance of Protestant services had to be performed within the family home. And I discovered that this practice had continued in Godard's uh, own family, where very often on the Sunday uh, they would not go to church but would have the Protestant services at home. And it strikes me again as illuminating and suggestive of Godard that the way in which, I wouldn't say without any precedent in the history of the cinema, but within, without much precedent in the history of the cinema, that Godard, as it were, practices his faith at home, could uh, in some ways be seen in relation to this uh, religious tradition. And it must be said, one of the moments that, 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 that I find uh, most striking was when his brother told me 
about the long tradition of Protestant pastors within the family, and then said, and of course, Jean-Luc himself is a Protestant pastor, uh, an image I haven't since been able to get out of my mind. Godard comes from this dual situation, but this dual situation was interrupted and interrupted very, very severely uh, by two things. It was interrupted by the war, and it was interrupted by the breakup, breakdown of his parents' marriage. And in 1945, having been in Switzerland for three years continuously, he came to Paris to continue his studies at the Lycée, and he came to a, a, a situation in which I don't think there has ever been anywhere more intense reflection on the cinema. Paris had been the capital of cinema since uh, the Lumière brothers, and it had also been, from throughout the 20s and 30s, the capital of the reflection on the cinema. It wasn't just that cinema was made, it was that people thought about cinema. And it's in Paris that you find the first beginnings of those people who are saying, here is a new great democratic art, here is an art which transforms everything since the Renaissance. Here is an art which challenges the basis of uh, the way in which we've thought about art. Now, at that point, sound arrived. Now, one of the great, great attractions of cinema for intellectuals was that it was a universal art. Uh, and that was a particular attraction in the years after the First World War. Here was an art that would transcend national, national languages, that would transcend nationalities. Here was uh, the universal art. Bang! Along comes sound, and two things happen when you get sound. First of all, immediately you get national cinemas in a way that you didn't have beforehand. And of course you did have national cinemas, but you really do have national cinemas now. And secondly, the budgets go through the roof, because actually the cost of shooting sound uh, effectively consolidates Hollywood's dominance. And intellectuals drop cinema like... Uh, I mean, there, there, were, there were always a relatively small number of people who have been interested in the cinema, and most of them drop it with the advent of sound. There is one uh, exception... There is a man called uh, Roger Lanehart who writes for uh, a Catholic magazine called Esprit in the 30s and he says, no, the uh, project of cinema is above all a realist project. The advent of sound means that, that cinema can be more realistic. I want to welcome the advent of sound and furthermore, I'm going to write a little handbook for the spectator so that the spectator, the person who is looking at the cinema, can begin to understand how the film is put together and understand it better. And if you, if you understand in that little moment the whole of the Cahiers du Cinema's project, then you're completely correct to understand it because it is exactly... His most attentive reader is a man called André Bazin. André Bazin develops the notion of educating the public and culminates with the publication of Cahiers du Cinema, a publication which is very deliberately broken away both from the university but also from the Communist Party. And it's broken away from the university for fairly obvious reasons. It's broken away from the Communist Party because, of course, in post-war France, in exactly the position where Godard is as a, as a, as a young man, the Cold War has broken out. And if the Cold War has broken out and you're on the Russian side, 
then you are meant to loathe Hollywood and it's meant to love place the glories of Conrad Stanley. So if you are interested in the cinema, that particular Cold War opposition is untenable. And uh, Bazin, a very gentle and very wonderful man, finally has enough and he writes a hilarious article called The Myth of Stalin. And in The Myth of Stalin, he goes through contemporary Soviet films and shows how the new Soviet films are not like the old Soviet films trying to show historical elements at work, that everything is at service of a one all-knowing hero called Stalin. And as he says in what must have been a particularly wounding blow, he says, it is true, of course, that Hollywood has heroes like this, but he says Tarzan at least has the justification that the audience want to go and see him, whereas Stalin doesn't even have that. So, uh, Bazin has split himself uh, from both the traditional intellectuals and the traditional left. He sets up a magazine in which all these young people, Godard included, write and develop their theories. But write and develop their theories at the end of a project. The project is to improve public taste, so to improve cinema, so to enable them to make the films for an improved cinema. And remarkably, because you might think that sounds a bit stupid, uh, that's what they did. Now, exactly how they did it is very complicated, and I now want to speed up a bit. But very crudely put, they did it for two reasons. The first reason was a new generation of technology. They got new generations of sound recorders, new generations of cameras, which meant they were able to shoot on the street, which meant they were able to capture Paris on the run uh, and at a very low cost in a way that nobody had before. And secondly, the state institution, uh, which uh, looked after, was charged with the cinema, was desperate to find some new life. So funnily enough, uh, although you might have a, an image of them struggling against the establishment. They were certainly struggling against the establishment of directors, producers, etc. But the bureaucrats behind uh, those directors and producers were actually looking for a new generation of filmmakers. And thus you find them breaking through these institutions and in an extraordinary moment uh, you find uh, Truffaut who has been specifically and by name banned from the Cannes Film Festival, I think it's 1957. In 1958, he wins the best prize as director, with the Catra Sancourt, Chagrol makes his films, Godard makes Abu de Souf, and suddenly they are the new wave, and the new wave literally goes around the world with imitators in Italy, Brazil, you name it, the new wave is, is there. So, family, intellectual context, institution, those are three ways of looking at him. But finally, politics. Godard, you might think, would be blissfully happy with the cinema. But any of you who, for example, seen Le Mépris, people seen Le Mépris, will know that he isn't very happy with the cinema. And he isn't very happy with the cinema for a whole series of reasons, from the most personal, where one of the things that all these young delinquent boys had dreamt about 
was becoming directors so they could have their star, so they could have their Marlena Dietrich, their Rita Hayworth. And Goddard indeed found his star, found Anna Karina, and he married her. But the marriage uh, was breaking up in very much the terms uh, that the marriage in Le Mépris uh, breaks up. But also, there was the historical paradox that their praise of Hollywood came exactly at the moment that the Hollywood they were praising was dying. The late 50s, under the impact of uh, the divestment of their exhibition chains and the impact of television, means that Hollywood goes through a catastrophic period and all their favourite directors, the Nicholas Rays and the Sam Fullers, cannot find work. So there's a, a tremendous lack of, uh, a failure of faith in uh, what's happened to them. And also, there is the Vietnam War. There is America, which would be the liberation of Europe in uh, 1944-1945, is now s- suddenly the clear oppressor. And Goddard's work uh, reflects this uh, in the mid-60s. And it ends with him quitting the cinema completely. He leaves the institutions of cinema, despite the fact that he's one of the best-known names in the cinema. In fact, he gives up his name. He stops making films uh, uh, as Godard. He starts making films as the Ziegler-Vertov group. The name Ziegler-Vertov being chosen both for the innovation of documentary uh, style, but also as against Eisenstein, as against the representative of kind of Soviet orthodoxy. And that uh, experiment that Goddard undertakes is really unthinkable without understanding uh, the moment uh, of 1968. Uh, I mean, at one level, uh, an unimportant hiccup in uh, the development of a consumer state, a month when a student riots and a general strike have General de Gaulle helicoptering out of Paris to the armies on the Rhine to make sure that they'll be loyal in face of the impending revolution. Uh, back at home, a young Jacques Chirac puts a pistol in his pocket as he sets out to negotiate uh, with the unions and successfully buys them off. In effect, May is over by May 31st. Um, but if it's over at one level of the society, there's a huge number of young people who believe that uh, a new dawn is at hand, new ways of working must be invented, and Goddard, much older, is amongst them as he sets out on uh, a series of political experiments which, although of continuing interest, are, are films which are completely unwatchable. Just to give you again the, the merest a fragment of a moment, they set out to Czechoslovakia to film what's happening in Czechoslovakia, but the whole film is devoted to showing that you can't go and film somewhere and find out what's happening. Thus, for example, there's a moment at which you're suddenly with two workers in a factory and they're talking Czech to each other. You expect the translation to come up on the soundtrack, and instead, what comes up is, what comes up is the injunction. If you don't know Czech, you better learn it fast. Um, so a, a, a huge kind of way of showing you how difficult, or at least the presuppositions within traditional documentary, but the context for those experiments was an active revolutionary movement which had simply disappeared 
by the time uh, that they returned to the cinema and made a film called Tout va bien, which effectively presents a, a picture of France four years after 68 and shows the various impasse in which everybody is stuck. And Godard then not only leaves the cinema, he leaves Paris. He moves first of all to Grenoble and then to a very, very small village called Roll. And he has, for the last 30 years, made his films from there on his own terms, with his own equipment, and he claims to be, and I think he probably is, the only filmmaker who can shoot film 365 days a year without asking anybody's uh, buyer leave. His name is enough to bring in sufficient commissions that he continues a remarkably uh, productive uh, life and includes what I think is a new form and which I can't imagine, and this is where I'll end, I can't imagine any rivals in the immediate future because Godard is born in the Cinematheque, in the Longbois Cinematheque, in this, if Bazin is one of his godfathers, the other is Longbois. Longbois in his Cinematheque in Paris showing the whole Hawks' work, both silent uh, and talky, uh, both uh, Western and comedy, uh, the entire range of Hawks' work is for the first time watchable in Paris immediately after uh, uh, the war. And Godard, in uh, 1978, goes to Montreal after Longbois' deaths and gives a series of lectures on the history of the cinema in which he says every other page, the real trouble is I don't have the technological means to talk to you about the cinema because I need the cinema to talk about the cinema. And, of course, the developments of video enable him to do just that. And what he does from 1988 uh, to 1998 is make an extraordinary series of um, films or videos, I don't know which you would want to call them. Uh, they're called Histories of Cinema, but they are, and I mean this quite uh, seriously, they are a history of the cinema, but they're also a history of the 20th century, and they're also an autobiography. And these three things are mixed together uh, in a way which uh, I can only evoke, I certainly can't uh, describe and with a richness of, uh, of image and sound uh, for which I know no parallel. The reason we'll never see any of it again, I mean, we'll never see anything like it in the near future, is that Godard takes from the whole history of cinema, and if he wants a scene, he just puts it on. Now, first of all, you need the material conditions where you can get your hands on any film that you want, difficult enough. But secondly, and much more importantly, <clears throat> You need the resources to clear the copyright on those films. Something which Godard, of course, did not bother to do, but which Gaumont, his great patron, did bother to do for him. Uh, and as I say, I doubt whether one will ever, uh, or not in any near future, uh, see such a work again. And it also offered uh, an end to my book, because, of course, one of the ways that Joyce manages to avoid a unified subjectivity is that he starts his book in the uh, third person but ends it in the first person with a set of diary entries from Stephen Dedalus. And so uh, I was able to end a book with the first person 
because Godard himself ends the Histoire du Cinéma with a long personal passage about no matter how terrible the world he has lived in, the cinema he's lived in, how much he appreciates the fact that he's been allowed to film. And he ends with this quotation, which is a quotation from Borges, which is a quotation from Coleridge, and Godard knew that, but what I found out is even the Coleridge is a quotation from the German thinker John Paul. And he ends with this thought. If a man, if a man travelled across paradise in a dream and received a flower as proof of his passage, and on awakening he found that flower in his hands, what is to be said? I was that man. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which is part of the Pod Academy's exclusive series of lectures from the Houston's School of Film and Digital Media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not check out our other lectures and interviews on podacademy.org.